The legendary Sumerian King's List is considered one of the greatest sources of information on ancient Mesopotamia. On this list, there was a lone female named Kubaba. Her reign of the city-state Kish was around 2500 BC, and she is thought by many to be the first queen in recorded history. Much is unknown about her reign, just like much is unknown to many about this week's story, the first NFL team in the city of Buffalo. And oddly enough, the city of Buffalo has a nickname, and that is the Queen City. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is April 30th, 1921, and we are at Akron, Ohio, because we are here to witness the Akron Pros be awarded the first ever NFL championship. Now, there's an article from the Akron Beacon Journal dated May 2nd, 1921. It kind of summed it up, and it is stated as such. At the meeting, Frank Need and Art Ranney, owners of the Akron Professional Club, were presented with the large, loving cup donated by the Brunswick Blake Colander, the cup to be personal property of the team winning it three years. The Akron team was also officially proclaimed the world's professional football champions of 1920. End quote. Because there you go. Akron Pros, the first ever NFL champion. But wait, you see, this week's guest tells of a story about how this was a closer race than we might have even known. His name is Jeff Miller, and Jeff's going to ride shotgun with us to take us back to that first year to learn about the first team in the city of Buffalo, the first NFL team, not the Buffalo Bills, hailing from the American Football League. No, we're talking about the Buffalo All-Americans. Now, Jeff himself, He's a Buffalo historian and author, and the reason why I asked him to stop by this week's episode is to drop a little bit of grin-iron knowledge nuggets on you about the first true team, the first NFL team, that is, of the Queen City, which is Buffalo. But why him? I mean, well, the dude, he wrote a book on the team and is a walking Buffalo history juggernaut. He's an award-winning author writing around the history of Buffalo, but primarily football-related. One book he even co-authored with legendary coach Marv Levy. So, I'll just say, he's got a little bit of knowledge about how football has gone down in the city of Buffalo. And I'll go ahead and leave links to the show notes and to his dedicated page for all of these books so you can go and check them out yourself. By the way, you can get to the dedicated page for Jeff Miller by heading to thefootballhistorydude.com slash Jeff Miller. Again, that's thefootballhistorydude.com slash Jeff Miller. Also, I ask that you please subscribe for free to this show by mashing that little subscribe button in your podcast player of choice. That way you get the hottest, freshest out the press episodes, well, each and every week. But let's get after those gridiron knowledge nuggets on the first NFL team in the city of Buffalo. I turn it over the show to Mr. Jeffrey Miller. Take it away, Jeff. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Ernie. Oh, for sure. And uh, what we want to do here is uh, we want to step off the DeLorean and we want to unpack Jeff Miller. How did you get into football and the early professional football it is? You know, tell me that origin story. Well, when I was uh, younger, I always wanted to be a writer. So I was always, uh, you know, writing and doing whatever articles. 
And um, I had written a local history book. I come from a small town called Lime Lake in New York. And um, I had written a local history book. And when I was going to write my next book, uh, I had just read about uh, a gentleman named Jim Ailinger, who at the time was 99 years old, was the oldest surviving former NFL player. Um, and he was being inducted into Bu- Greater Buffalo Sports Hall of Fame. And I, I was kind of interested in it because I was a football fan, but you know, I didn't really think much of it. But the funny thing is, a couple of days later, I went to the Buffalo Public Library to do some research on my next book, which was going to actually going to be a Civil War book. And when I opened up some of the old scrapbooks they had, um, the first thing I opened to was an article about the Buffalo All-Americans. And I thought it was a little bit too weird that I came across the two similar things in the same week. So I did a little more research and then they found out it was uh, a pretty fascinating story. I decided to write the book um, and it gave me an opportunity to bring together my love of history, my love of football and my love of writing. And it led to the book Buffalo's Forgotten Champion. Sure. Yeah. And you have a lot of other books too, but in this particular one, we're going to talk about, you know, the Buffalo All-Americans, one of the original teams of the NFL or American Professional Football Association. Uh, Let's go ahead and hop on the DeLorean. Let's go to the origin story of the Buffalo All-Americans. How did it all begin? Well, Buffalo had a semi-pro Sandlot team prior to 1920, 1920 being the year of the National Football League or the American Professional Football um, Association was formed. They had a team in the, you know, they would play a lot of the Ohio League teams. Uh, They had a team called the Buffalo Niagara's that started back in 1916 or so, and they became the Buffalo Prospects around 1919. They played other teams from around New York State, Rochester Jefferson, teams from Syracuse, and they also played some of the Ohio League teams as well. And that team is the nucleus uh, that became the Buffalo All-Americans in 1920. Some of the players from that team included guys like Barney Lepper and Tommy Hewitt, who became very important in the formation of the Buffalo All-Americans in 1920. So then 1920, that's really the, I guess you could say the beginning of the All-Americans? Yeah, that, that would really be the beginning of it because that's, you know, the all a lot of these, these players that, you know, the team was named after who were actual All-American players were not on the team prior to that. So when the when the new professional football league was being started in 1920, a lot of cities wanted to have representation. So the Rochester Jeffersons were there, and most of the Ohio League teams were there. Uh, Buffalo was did not have a representative at that first meeting in Canton, but they did join the league shortly afterwards. They were considered charter members from the very beginning, um, but they weren't at the initial meeting. But what happened was when this team got together, there was no real formal name for it. So the first three or four weeks, there was no real name other than they called them the Buffalo Professionals because they didn't have a name like the Lions or the Tigers or whatever. The local newspapers started to call them the All-Americans because there were so many All-Americans on the team. There was Heine Miller, there was Murray Shelton, there was Lou Little, there was Sweet Youngstrom, a bunch of guys who had been actual college All-Americans. And the team became known as the All-Americans and just kind of adopted that moniker as their official name, you know, probably somewhere through the season. Although there's no official record of when it became called, called the, the team became called the All-Americans. But the thing is that, you know, Buffalo was like a lot of other cities that played these Sandlot games in the 1910s. They wanted to be in on this new professional football league thinking maybe someday it's going to be like Major League Baseball. And, you know, and look at some of the teams that were 
um, around in those days. You had the Chicago, the Decatur Staley's who became the Chicago Bears. You had the Chicago Cardinals who are now the Arizona Cardinals. So a lot of those teams, Green Bay Packers came in in the, in the league in 1921. So these, this league did evolve into the league we know it today. Who was backing them financially then or their owner? Did they have one? Yeah, they had an owner. His name was Frank McNeil. He was a lawyer and he was also in the lumber business, I believe. Um, he was the guy with the money behind the league. The initial leases for the Canisius Villa, which is where the All-Americans played their home games, was signed by Barney Lepper, who was a member of the Prospects, and Tommy Hewitt also was there. But it was Lepper and, and uh, McNeil who signed the lease for the Villa. So, you know, Lepper was considered one of the original owners of the team. And Tommy Hewitt was the coach. So it was the three of them who basically were the movers and shakers behind the team. So was he active as far as promoting the team or was it more of he was a financial backer? McNeil? Oh, he, no, he was very, he was very active. He was every, every week, you know, during the week you would see several articles about the football team in the local papers. And, you know, there was always McNeil talking up the team or promoting them in some way. He was, there was always, some quote from him in the paper to, you know, promote the team or the next game, you know, whoever was coming to town, whether it was, uh, you know, Canton Bulldogs or whoever, they usually had a quote from McNeil. And who did you say was the coach again? The coach was Tommy Hewitt. Tommy Hewitt was from the University of Michigan, and he had also been the coach of the uh, Buffalo teams in the late 1910s and stayed with the Buffalo All-Americans when they became professional. So then... This first year they get started, you know, of course, that's, you know, they've been around a little bit in Buffalo before, but that 1920 season, they kind of had a historic pace to start the year off, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Um, in 1920, the first seven games of the season, uh, it was just actually just mentioned on Sunday Night Football recently, but the first seven games of the season, they actually had a 218-point differential between themselves and their, their opponents. Their, their aggregate score was 218 points greater than their opponents. Um, the next closest was the New England Patriots of this year, who started out their first seven games with uh, something like the 200, 179 or something like that. I can't remember the score, but um, yeah, they were on some kind of torrid pace at that point. And, you know, obviously they weren't playing teams of the caliber, you know, that were they were equal to, but because they were playing a lot of semi-pro and, and sandlot teams in those days as well, because a, a lot of those, you know, cities, their teams were that were Sandlotters. They joined the league, and they didn't have these All-Americans like the Buffalo team did. So the Canton Bulldogs, the Buffalo teams, some of these other teams, they have really good uh, rosters. But a lot of the teams, like the Muncie Flyers or the Tonawanda Lumberjacks or some of these other teams, they were just a bunch of Sandlotters who wanted to join the league and thought if they got into the league, that made them professional. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. Right. So how did Buffalo get all of these All-Americans to play for their team then? Well, that, that's one thing I'm not really certain of other than, you know, probably recruitment by Tom. I'm assuming it was mostly Tommy Hewitt. He, he had some connections because he had, you know, played in the Ohio League and he had played at Michigan. And so he probably knew a lot of people. He was able to probably entice some of these people like Aki Anderson, Sweet Youngstrom, Lou Little, Lud Ray. But I believe it more than anything, it was the money. I'm sure Frank McNeil gave them a lot more money than they were being offered at somewhere else. Yeah, because Rochester's, I mean, not right down the road, but I guess that'd probably be the closest proximity. And 
They were pretty mm-hmm. much bootstrapping it. Yeah, Leo Lyons it, it, up in Rochester didn't have the kind of money that Frank McNeil had, so they, you know, they they tried to get go out and get Jim Thorpe, and they tried to go out and get Red Grange, I believe, but they just didn't have the money to pull it off. And, and by the time Red Grange was coming in, in 1925, Buffalo didn't either. So, you know, it, it took a team that was based in either Chicago or New York that was going to get a player like Jim Thorpe or Red Grange. They they were just too high priced. Yeah, and speaking of, I mean, Red Grange, like you said, was a little bit too far down the road, but at the beginning, mm-hmm. did they play Jim right. Thorpe and the Canton Bulldogs in that 1920 season? Yeah, as a matter of fact, they did. Um, at the end of the season, on December 4th in 1920, they played the Canton Bulldogs at the Polo Grounds in New York, and it was actually the first major league professional football game to be played in New York City. And attendance estimates are somewhere between fifteen and 20,000 that attended, which is pretty great considering here in Buffalo at the Canisius Villa, they were drawing seven, 8,000 per game. So that, that was pretty darn good. Do you know why they played, considering Canton and Buffalo, neither one of them are from New York City. Why did they play in the big city? Well, Canton would be the logical choice because of Jim Thorpe. They had, you know, they had the biggest name in the sport in that, in that one person right there. And Buffalo, they had accumulated such a great record and all their players being all Americans were pretty well known. So if you were going to New York City, you know, a lot, you've heard of Swede Youngstrom, you've heard of Aki Anderson, you've heard of Murray Shelton. These guys were pretty well known. So it was a good fit. It was a good matchup and it was a good game. Uh, the all Americans won seven to three. Um, so, you know, here in Buffalo, we can pat ourselves on the back for that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because <laughs> we've had a few disappointments in, in more recent years, but that, that was a pretty big game. You know, the first big game in New York City. Well, being that that was a, such a big game, 1920, like you said, near the end of the year, they beat the, the Bulldogs. Does that mean that they were ended up being crowned the champions of the first season? No, unfortunately, that it didn't work out that way. The league in those days did not have a head-to-head playoff or a championship game. What they did was they determined their champion by deciding um, or by a winning percentage by, you know, who, who had the best winning percentage. And in 1920, the Akron pros won it because they finished eight, zero and three. The all Americans finished nine, one and one. And if they would have counted the ties as they did later on, okay, the Akron pros would have had the same percentage as the, as the all Americans, I think it would have come out to eight sixty three or something like that as a winning percentage for both teams. So it would have been a tie. But because the Akron Pros didn't lose a game, they were given the title. So did the Buffalo All-Americans ever play against Akron that year then, the champs? Yeah, they did. On the final game of the season, The um, as a matter of fact, uh, the very next day after playing Canton at the Polo Grounds, they came home to Buffalo and they played Akron and they played into a 0-0 tie. Akron, of course, was quarterbacked by Fritz Pollard, who was the first African-American head coach in NFL history. But they played them to a 0-0 tie, which left Akron undefeated at 8-0-3 and in Buffalo at 9-1-1. and But like you said, they had to play them basically right after they played Canton Bulldogs in New York. Yeah, but that was, it was, it was a pretty common thing back in those days. You, you might even see a team play three games in one weekend. They might play on Thanksgiving Day and then on Saturday and Sunday. And, you know, that's just kind of the way it was because the players were just playing for the money. So if you were offering them $250 or whatever, the better player, better paid players are making, 
you know, they're saying, yeah, I'll play it. Yeah, sure. I'll make $750 for, you know, four days work, you know, back in the 1920s. That was pretty darn good money. Right. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it was a little bit different than it is nowadays with uh, the millionaire contracts and everything and no guarantees. So I would imagine, hey, you got a game to play. Let's, let's strap it up. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And mo- you know, most of the players, you know, the, the, the guys who weren't well known, they were making, you know, 50 bucks a game, whatever, 75. It was the guys that were the better known players, like the Swede Youngstroms and the Akari Andersons who were making a little bit more like, you know, $200 a game. If you were an All-American, it's just like today, the better known you are, the better money you can make. You keep bringing up Swede Youngstrom. Why do you bring him up so much? Well, I, he's one of my favorites. He he is, I, I like to extol him as Buffalo's first true football superstar. He was a guard with the team. He only weighed about 188 pounds, but he was a all-pro guard three consecutive years. Um, and I actually have records that show that he may have gotten a couple of more all-pro nods, but the records weren't that well kept back in those days. And the all-pro teams were chosen by different newspapers or whatever. So, um, but Swede Youngstrom was, let's say, a, a multiple all-pro. And he played here for six years. And the first two years, they were nine and one and one. And uh, he was just a really good player. And after he left Buffalo, he went to play for the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets, where he won the league championship there. So he's, he's a pretty interesting player. He was an All-American coming out of Dartmouth. And um, he was he was a rock for this team. So would it be safe to say that if you had to vote for somebody to make it in the professional Hall of Fame, he'd be somebody? Yeah, I, I've actually made my feelings about that pretty public. I uh, I go on the uh, PFRA website and I will let people know that I believe Youngstrom is probably the best lineman of the era who's not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Well, maybe someday they'll open it up to some of the real long time goes. I know this year they're going to be adding more players, but I don't think I've seen his name on there as a finalist. No, you won't. Um, and it's sad because I think they're probably going to go back and maybe get two or three people from the 20s and 30s, and then everybody else is going to be from the 50s and beyond, or 50s and up, I think. And even then it's going to be you know, maybe a couple guys from the AFL. But... You know, I just don't feel confident that they're going to go back and look at these guys seriously because, quite frankly, I don't think a lot of the historians that are, you know, involved are really that interested in going back that far. They're more interested in names that are more familiar to people. So you're probably not going to see a guy like Sweet Youngster make it in. There's a couple of guys from from the Packers in those days and that are being looked at: Labby Dillwig and Laverne Llewellyn. The Buffalo All Americans never won a championship, so there's really nothing sexy about him yeah but i mean like you kind of alluded to it but that first two seasons they were arguably the best team in the league i mean 1921 season two they had uh uh, what i'll call a championship controversy can you talk about that a little bit controversies championships buffalo i didn't think they had an nfl championship well i guess Maybe we'll find out in the next week's episode, because that's when you're going to have to wait to hear the rest of this interview with Jeff Miller to talk about the 1921 Buffalo All-Americans Championship, or the controversy that was. And also, he discusses beyond 1921 about the first NFL team in the Queen City. And if you haven't figured this out, I, I want to thank Mr. Jeffrey Miller for coming on the show, riding shotgun with us on the DeLorean, giving us those great iron knowledge nuggets about the first NFL team in Buffalo City. I tell you what, 
there's some pretty cool stories that I myself never even fathomed could have happened. But so goes the 1920s before the 1920s with professional football and beyond. It's crazy to think how the NFL has got to where it is now in the 100th season. And we're almost at the end of the 100th season. So let's take a step back. Let's go ahead and if you like this show, why don't you go ahead and share it with at least one more football geek such as yourself? Because we want to make sure everybody knows about the history of the game. And also, if you want to learn more about Jeff Miller and all of his books, you can head to his dedicated page on the website. That's at thefootballhistorydude.com slash Jeff Miller. Again, that's thefootballhistorydude.com slash Jeff Miller. Now, next week, we're going to go ahead and hear about that 1921 championship. Well, the controversy that was. And learn more about that first NFL team in Buffalo. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.